0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. Our guest on this episode is Susie Sheehy, an accelerator physicist at the Universities of Oxford and Melbourne. She joined David Malone to tell us about the matter of everything, her new history of the 20th century physics experiments that led to the making of the modern world. It's an incredible journey and highly recommended for anyone who wants to understand the creativity of science and how we came to our current understanding of reality. Enjoy their conversation. Good evening, everyone.
1: It's my great pleasure to talk this to Susie Sheehy, who is um, a doctor at the University of Oxford and the University of Melbourne, We've got both hemispheres covered, and... Uh, It's just written, The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World. It made me laugh already by page five, I have to say, um, because already on page five, you say, an experimental physicist has a more nuanced job. Yes. (laughs) Here's a lady who's not taking any prisons at all, because the book is about the importance of the experimental side and that experimentalists, the people who run the experiments, aren't just checking the ideas of the theoreticians.
2: Exactly. I think physics is often seen as a very theoretical subject and as one where, you know, there's this like smart, unobtainable geniuses like Albert Einstein who create these wonderful theories because they dream them up from pure insight, which the rest of us can't possibly manage. And then, you know, some lackey, me, the experimentalist, has to go in and check whether his ideas are correct. Well, that's not at all how science works, right? So as an experimentalist, I wanted to bring to life the people who go into the lab every day and have a very different set of skills and who, yeah, okay, sometimes they are trying to check something that a theorist has predicted, but often They have to have their own ideas and hunches and intuitions. They have to connect up. And and I I describe it as this sort of vulnerable place to be at this interface of the real world, right? Because a theorist, as long as the mathematics works out and they're not contravening previous experimental results, they can kind of go off to their heart's content, creating theories about strings and that sort of thing. Um, (laughs) Whereas an experimentalist has to be rooted in reality. And that's, yep, as I say, a more nuanced job.
1: Yeah, And what came out of all of your examples is, if if I had to try and sum it up, was they were people who were just really good at asking a better question than Mm. anyone else had thought of. So the other people might have been asking questions, but the people that you talk about, they just had this knack for looking at it and going and asking a, a really good question. Would you say that's right?
2: Yeah, I think it's one of the conclusions that I've drawn from this process is that Asking good questions is one of the most fundamentally important things we have. You know, I mean, it's often said, right, that like forming the right question is is half of the way to the solution. Um, So I think that that's true. And it's, you know, if you think about scientific questions, it's something I always get my students, my research students to try and formulate in words, which is what is the question you are asking? Mm -hmm. And If they come out with a question of like, does this thing work this way or this way? I'll be like, No. That's like a yes, no, or a either or question. That's, that's not an open-ended enough question. So, for example, in the book, uh, one of the experiments I talk about is J.J. Thompson and the discovery of the electron for, in the late 19th century, first particle smaller than an atom. Now, he originally went in there um, with this glass experiment called a cathode ray tube, and he was trying to look for whether or not um, the rays, as they call them cathode rays, how those rays behaved with electric and magnetic fields right and following up on some results from Heinrich Hertz before him he tried especially with electric fields to bend the beam of what are now called a beam the cathode rays right because they didn't know whether it was sort of made of light or something immaterial or made of some kind of particle and there was this actually sort of German position was mostly that it was made of some kind of light but J.J. Thompson and the sort of English position was that it was made of some kind of corpuscle, as they called it, or or particle, as we now would say. And so there was this really confusing result that if he applied a voltage, if the voltage was really high, it would bend the beam of cathode rays. But if the voltage was only low, it would have no effect at all. And this was very confusing because now, well, and even at the time, he he sort of thought, okay, a low voltage should bend it a little bit and a high voltage should bend it a lot, and it wasn't happening. Now, if he had asked a, a sort of, I don't know, a closed question about that, you know, like, do the rays bend the way I predict they will? He would have just concluded, well, no, they don't. Therefore, my theory is wrong. Um, it's not as ha- how I predicted. And he would have walked away. I don't understand cathode rays. They don't, they don't work how I hypothesized. right? <laughs> like a very naive position. But instead, the question he was asking really is what is the nature of the cathode rays? which is a much more open question, right? And it allows him to then formulate the sort of smaller questions like, okay, well, well, how do cathode rays behave in electric fields? And when it didn't react the way that he thought it should, he investigated further and he was like, okay, well, maybe that's to do with the gas inside the tube. And so he removed the gas from the tube and then it worked how he predicted. So then he could tell that the gas was actually charging up and that was the problem. So then he could do much more reliable experiments, understand his equipment And eventually he discovers that actually these cathode rays are made of charged particles like 2000 times smaller than the smallest atom they'd ever seen, which is the hydrogen atom. And that is what we now know of as the electron. And I can't even say how important it is that we needed to know about the electron. That knowledge then was taken up by other people working on very early vacuum tube devices for electronics and that understanding really underpinned the development of the entire electronics industry radio radio telecommunications everything that came from it including like tube amplifiers for music it just exploded
1: and and that story it 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 shows you that he's not just saying how does this work the, the mm.
0: way?
1: he's cuz there is no this it, it, there's something that he can't see it's it's an unknown thing so he's isn't it so, so, somewhere in the book you talk about it being a conversation with the unknown? A conversation
2: that? with the unknown, yes, which I love. Um, so, my favorite poet is named David White, and he has these lovely, he has this vocabulary which I absolutely love. And so, yeah, a frontier of vulnerability is one of the things he talks about. And I describe experimental physics as sort of a frontier of vulnerability with the real world and then the other thing he talks about is is conversations and he's often talking about our own emotions and the conversations that we hold with ourselves with others with the world but in physics I feel that what we're actually having is really you know a conversation with the unknown at the end of the book I come back to this idea that for me yeah it's just constantly having this conversation it's not about necessarily what I've achieved or what I've discovered or what I've published or you know all of these things or even what I've created. It's about me being able to go in the lab and have a conversation through the extension of my senses, which is the experiment with the unknown and with nature, which is a pretty special thing to do for a job when you think about it like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: And,
1: and you have to ask very, open, as you say, open-ended questions, but again, mm. A lot of people, it's easy to see scientists as people who are just checking the way things are, that they're sort of very practical and just look at the world the way it is. But almost all the stories that you tell, the question that the person asks is based on them imagining, just pure imagination, Mm. some some aspect of the universe which you can't see, you can't smell, you can't taste, no one has Mm. has even thought it could possibly be. So it's a... a, (laughs) It, it, in some ways, it's even more open-minded than the theoreticians, because they're saying, "All right, well, given what we've got, how does this fit together?" But the...
2: we both do. I think both theorists and experimentalists think in this way, and it's why I describe science as a creative process, mm. because it's not—it's—it's it's not as all as logical as you might expect. And one of the things that physicists, both theoretical and experimental, talk about a lot is this idea of intuition: is that once you have done enough experiments or, or, you know, worked through enough theory and sort of seen the unexpected ways in which things evolve, because you know, a lot of the experiments I talk about involve some element of serendipity. Now serendipity to a prepared mind, but still serendipity wasn't, wasn't blind luck, right? Like you build the experiment that could measure the thing, but you didn't know what you were going to find. And so, so yeah, I think that's how I, I view it, I guess.
1: <laughs> and, I mean, the other thing you said right at the beginning of the book, which has mm. set you back, it set me back, when you, when you just bluntly say, look, all the matter that we ever can encounter is made of two quarks and an electron.
2: <laughs> and if you yeah, think, Once we get to knowing about quarks in the 70s, yes, then you, then you really get this perspective. That,
1: but um, that you can make hedgehogs, candy floss, and supernova all out, and you and me, just right. out mixing up. I mean, it's not a lot of starting things. I mean, that's fewer pieces than you get in a Lego set.
2: No, exactly. It's not. And even if you take into account, you know, the the particles, slash the, the forces, right? So the, the photon that makes up the electromagnetic force is still only a handful of particles that make up absolutely everything around us, um, which is kind of humbling. And then one of the most spectacular things that happened in this whole exploration is not just you know, we didn't just have to rethink how all of that worked. And you know, this idea, for example, of particles being waves and waves being particles and matter not even being the solid entities that we, we thought it was since uh, ancient times. So that you know, if that didn't blow our minds enough. Then they started discovering particles that played no role whatsoever in our everyday matter. and And this was really a period of uh, sort of wild exploration and adventure, which inspired the um, the hot air balloon on the cover of the book, actually was this idea that you know through adventurous experiments and just going out there and and measuring things that we found things that no one ever predicted or imagined. So one of the first ones was the positron, which is the antimatter version of the electron. Now, of course, no one logically. <sighs> would have really thought that antimatter existed. It had been predicted theoretically by Paul Dirac uh, a few years before it was experimentally discovered. But the person who discovered it, Carl Anderson, didn't know about the theory. So he he wasn't directed by the theory to look for it. And he just looked at these results that he found in a particle detector called a cloud chamber, which he'd lugged up on the back of this old truck, (laughs) chugged it up this enormous mountain and it had this huge magnet around it and oh, sorry no the mountain came later sorry that one came later. this one was on the top of a building in, in um, California and he had to run it at nighttime because re- it required so much electricity that <laughs> the campus couldn't run and the experiment so anyway so he collects all this data o- overnight and um, finds that he has these tracks in the chamber because this this cloud chamber allowed us to visualise radiation for the first time, which was quite a mind-blowing thing. And it looked like an electron, this track, which they were quite used to seeing, but bent in the opposite direction in a magnetic field, which must mean it has the opposite electric charge. And yeah, so, so eventually he he experimented a bit. He put in like a, a metal plate to make sure that he wasn't fooling himself and uh, eventually was able to announce, yep, I'm seeing this new thing in nature. It's the opposite uh, of an electron. And I hear that no particular reason why that might exist at that point in time. And then later, the one with the going up the mountain about four years later, they go up the mountain with the same experiment. They even put it on a fighter jet, actually, which was very successful. a big
1: story, though. I mean, they nearly died.
2: Yes, <laughs> going up, <laughs> sitting on the mountain in the cold and the rain and um, taking these these photographs. And then they have to pour through all the photographs and, and find their results. And it was a very adventurous spirit and so the next thing that they found was a particle called a muon which is like a heavier version like 200 times heavier of of the electron and one of the theorists Isidore Rabi actually went down in history quite famously that his response to that was who ordered that like it was just you know nature is just wilder and more you know like interesting than I think our imaginations can even create. And I should say it wasn't just male physicists who were going up and doing these experiments, right, and doing these um, adventurous experiments. Uh, And one of the things that I did in the book is to include a lot of stories of women who were often excluded from Mm. the story. Um, So in that same chapter about this detector called the cloud chamber, there was a competing technology which relied on thick photographic plates called emulsions. And they were developed by a woman named Marietta Blau working in Vienna. And they were actually, for many reasons, better than the cloud chamber for some experiments because they were really stable. You could just carry them up the mountain and leave them there for months at a time collecting data, carry them back down again and then analyse them. And Marietta Blau and her assistant, Hertha Van Bakker, made some amazing discoveries about nuclear disintegrations with these. And there was also an Indian physicist, Biba Chowdhury, who um, I'd not heard about before I wrote this book, Uh, who also used these photographic emulsions to discover another type of particle called a pion, or we now know it as the pion. Unfortunately, because of World War II supply issues, the photographic emulsions she was using were not like of perfect quality. And so her result, even though it was published in Nature, which is like, you know, the top scientific journal, was not quite, she couldn't quite disambiguate between that and the muon, which I just mentioned. And so a few years later, Cecil Power, working in England, basically does the same experiment with better emulsions and finds the pion and wins the Nobel Prize for it. And she was never nominated even. Blau was nominated a number of times but never won it. And so one of the things I talk about in the book, these are just two examples of women whose stories most people probably haven't heard of, is that this is not just a, you know, a sort of thing which has happened to a couple of individual women and then, you know, unfortunate for them it actually is a sort of effect that's happened over time of the contributions of women and um and you know, other underrepresented groups in physics have been sort of suppressed and often it's because they didn't they weren't their contributions weren't um acknowledged at the time their contributions were attributed to other people often the men that they worked for or with and then you know that sets off a cycle of misattribution and lack of reward, then their stories aren't recorded. You know, they're not the ones who were interviewed. Their oral histories aren't written down. Their letters aren't kept, et cetera. And so later on, you're decades later, we don't even have good records of what their lives were like or what they were like as people
1: the woman that you talked about in Fermilab.
2: Oh, at Fermilab. Yeah. Yes. Was- so then we shift, right? Like They're as the decades go past, we shift. It's called the Matilda effect. Um, it has a name, this effect of, of um, so if anyone would like to learn more about those um, underrepresentation of historic women in physics um, and just science in general, do, do give that one a Google. But yes, obviously over the decades, things have changed a lot, right? <laughs> I'm a Absolutely. female physicist. I don't, feel like my work is attributed to others. So that's good. And, yes, I include the story of this wonderful physicist who worked in my field named Helen Edwards, who was an accelerator physicist like me, as in she designs particle accelerators. And she was one of the masterminds behind this big accelerator in the US called the Tevatron. Um, And this was the biggest accelerator before the Large Hadron Collider. So some of our audience might not realise that, you know, over the years, machines just got sort of bigger and bigger and bigger as we reach higher and higher energies to explore further and further into effectively smaller and smaller or rarer and rarer processes and um, yeah she really was one of the masterminds behind that and um, unfortunately she passed away just a few years ago uh, I would have loved to to meet her otherwise.
1: Well, with the story you tell of her work because she, she goes through a whole load of chapters and it's great I mean she, she must have been well, she, she, she held together an enormous project and must have had to be very politically savvy because it becomes right. very politically charged and sort of there's the sort of politics between whole countries and she was holding it all together. So she's a great character in the book.
2: Yeah, she is. Yeah, so, her, so yeah, Helen Edwards together with um, Robert Wilson, who was the director of Fermilab at the time when Tevatron was, when the Tevatron was built, and, and a couple of other people, Rich Orr is one of them and Alvin Tolestrop, There's a whole, the problem with these uh, stories is that, of course, once you get to a large laboratory, there's there could be thousands of characters, right? <laughs> so I've had to choose a few out. But Helen really uh, did lead the the project to make the first superconducting Particle collider. And one of the reasons why this is important is because this thing had a radius of a kilometer, right? So it was multiple kilometers in circumference. Massive, massive project. And they were adding this ring out of superconducting material. So a superconductor is something which doesn't have an electrical resistance once it's below a certain temperature. But the material specifically, when they started, had never been made into magnets successfully before, especially not reliable enough magnets to run a particle collider 24-7. and but, but there were compelling reasons to increase the energy of this machine because they wanted to understand the next generation of, of quarks, so not the ones inside the atom but the heavier versions which we now know exist in nature. And they, um, they were predicted and they were looking for them. And what happened through that project is that by industrialising the process of making the wire, the superconducting wire, which they had to sort of trial and error effectively, building on a discovery from the UK, from the Rutherford Lab. And then they they just gave the recipe away to all the companies who were going to supply these cables for them, for the magnets. Instead of patenting it right, they actually gave the, the recipe away. And those companies then developed like industrialised quantities of this wire. And... First of all, it led to a successful project for the Tevatron, and that led to the discovery of the top quark, the heaviest quark in the standard model of particle physics. But also because they then had commercially available relatively cheap superconducting wire that you could make magnets out of, we then get into this like unexpected innovation space where then um, magnetic resonance imaging scanners, MRI scanners could utilise that technology. And so um, there's a quote in the book from someone from, uh, I think it's Teledyne is the company and one of the companies that make a lot of this nowadays. And, you know, they say that uh, basically every single superconducting project ever, whether it's a levitating tra- superconducting train or MRI scanners or anything else using superconducting magnets, owes its legacy to the fact that they built the Tevatron and it worked, mm-hmm. which is incredible, really. Like you, you wouldn't expect that a massive particle collider through this complex process of industrialization and all these things could lead to such a change in our ability to create new technologies but that's just one of the little stories in the book of how um how this process works and it's not it's not linear right like it's not make a discovery uh patent it create products make money like (laughs) <laughs> That's not how it works.
1: <laughs> no, and because the, the underlying science is so fundamental, it's not like they're coming up with just a slightly better mousetrap. Mm. They're coming up with something which is utterly new.
2: You know, exactly.
1: MRI scanners, they're not like something else. Just, no,
2: exactly. Okay. And there were sort of ideas for them before, but they, they literally couldn't make strong enough magnetic fields to make it work properly until they had superconducting magnets. Um, and and, and that's, that, that one's actually probably closer to like what they had before, right? Other things are, are really wildly different. So one of the other scanners you'll find in a hospital, I mean, yeah, medical, medical technology is one of the, the biggest applications of this stuff, right? One of the other scanners you'll find is positron emission tomography, Technology. Now, I mentioned a positron before, the opposite of the electron. When you bring it in contact, they annihilate and give off um, two photons, which go back to back because of the conservation of momentum. And so a positron emission tomography scanner is something where you take a sweet liquid, which is traced with a very small amount of um, a radioactive tracer that emits positrons. And then once that's inside your body, it's taken up by highly metabolic regions. So if you were to have a tumor or like a heart problem or something like this, it would go to these regions, which are burning lots of energy and concentrate there. And then as it emits the positrons, it creates these photons in the places where it's, where it's being emitted. And then you can put detectors around the patient, trace those back and build up an image of what's happening inside the body in a real like metabolic function sense, which is absolutely incredible. And there's just, you know, if we didn't understand antimatter, there's absolutely no way that we could have, that we could have um, made something like that. Now, th- those are two ones which people probably haven't come across as frequently in their lives. But also CT scanners, of course, come from originally the discovery of x-rays, which starts the book, and then um, also the, the cancer treatment technology.
0: Let's get back to the, the basic science. Um, mm.
1: One of the lovely parts of the book is when you, you, you talk about their, you, you're talking about the cloud chambers and they're, they're expecting these um, high energy- Cosmic
2: rays, uh, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, then the, and then someone says, wait a minute, there's far more than we were expecting. Where are all of these coming from? And it's, it's a lovely moment in the book, and they suddenly say, well, maybe they're coming from outer space. And
2: oh, yes. yeah.
1: suddenly, you suddenly realise that by asking this rather good question, It changes the nature of astronomy, but also our understanding of what's out there. Tell us a little bit about that, because that was one of these wonderful things where someone just goes, wait a minute, and suddenly the world opens up.
2: Yeah, so there was this there was this point in, in in time where like some of the experiments, this is very early 20th century now. The experiments that you would do in the laboratory with radioactive sources, um, so sources like radium or polonium discovered by Marie Curie and, and her husband Pierre. So you would have these radioactive sources in the lab and you would have these very simple experiments with something called an electroscope, which effectively is a box or a tin can, you know, with a with a, a, a metal rod in it. And on that metal rod you'd have either one or two pieces of of foil, usually gold foil. And when you charge the electroscope, the gold foils repel each other like this, right? And so over time, if there's a radioactive source present, that will discharge the electroscope and the foils will fall back down like this, right, over time. And so they could measure this change in foil position over time. And from that, they'd be able to measure the activity of the source or measure the amount of radiation that was happening. And they knew that if they moved further away from the source, this rate or the amount of radioactivity or charge should fall off uh, with the square of the distance. It's one of the um, classic sort of rules around this kind of thing. And what they were finding, though, is that that didn't happen, is that as they moved to further and further distances, actually there seemed to be a bit of extra radiation. And they're like, oh, that's all right. Well, we know that all these radioactive sources, of course, were refined from minerals in the Earth. So clearly this extra radiation is coming from the earth. And so you get these people taking their like electroscopes, which are pretty simple to build, like you or I could have built one at that point in time. And then they took uh, these electroscopes uh, down under the sea. Um, They took them up the Eiffel Tower. Charles Wilson, who invented the cloud chamber that I mentioned before, he took it to the New Caledonian Rail Tunnel in Scotland. Even he was in on it because they thought, right, if we're in the earth or under the earth, then we should see more radiation, and if we're up at a height like the top of the Eiffel Tower, then the radiation should drop off. And they didn't find the results that they expected. Right? And so then they go, okay, all right, now we need to get measurements at higher and higher altitudes, higher than the Eiffel Tower. So they start getting in hot air balloons and going up. But, of course, the instruments that they had, can you imagine two pieces of gold foil, like it's just going to shake around and like you're not going to be able to measure anything. And so this, there was a, a Jesuit priest actually named Theodore Wolf who invented a better version of these electroscopes, which had two wires instead of foils, and that was much more reliable. And then this physicist called Victor Hess in um, Austria sort of saw his chance with this new technology and this unanswered question, and he commandeered a hot air balloon and he went up on numerous, about six different trips in 1911, 1912, and was able to reliably measure how much radiation there was as he went up. And he found that at first it decreased, um, as they'd expected, moving away from the Earth. But then it increased and increased as he went up to higher altitudes. And the only conclusion they could draw from this, which he did, is that there is radiation raining down on us from space, which is known as cosmic rays. And the lovely thing about cosmic rays, even 100 years, more than 100 years later, we now sort of know what they're composed of because we've done all those experiments. But we're still figuring out how they form out in space, we, I just saw, there's a new paper out literally a couple of days ago uh, about how this might happen in, in supernova events out, out in space. And we still can't explain exactly how they get to these enormous energies, far higher energies than the large Hadron Collider than you know, anything that we could make on earth. Mm. And they're mostly high energy protons. Uh, and they come down to our atmosphere, collide with the atmosphere and then create showers of other particles, which, if you have a cloud chamber, um, you can actually see in front of your eyes as they traverse through, which is wonderful. <laughs> it's just mind-blowing, isn't it? There's there's this radiation, there's these particles that we can't censor there that are raining down on us all the time. And it's not a small number. It's like 10,000 per square metre per minute. It's a lot. It's <laughs> <is> a lot. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, and, and as you say... It's changed our picture of the universe. Instead of it being this big, quiet, empty black space, it suddenly mm. turns into this tremendously violent place where in, titanic energies are squirting out great beams of exotic particles. So, Right. It, it and not just
2: particles, but, but yeah, sort of um, gamma rays and, and uh, light as well, which comes in later in the book in chapter seven. Uh, I don't know if you want me to speak to that. Sorry. You-
1: yes, we can talk about any of them. It's, it's all, <laughs> all fantastic, but it, it's just, they suddenly, it really is a light bulb comes on and mm. the whole of radio astronomy and they discover um, yes. stars and all these, the, all these extraordinary things, which you can't see if you just look through a piece of glass. You know, you,
2: you, yeah. You, and it's something that we're, we're very sort of anthropogenically biased, aren't we? When we look at the universe, it's like, well, the things that are, on my size scale, the things that happen on my time scale and the things that I can physically detect with my own senses are the most important things. <laughs> and actually, you know, I mean, to be honest, it would blow our minds if we could actually see or detect or, or you know, sense all the stuff that's happening. We, you know, I think our tiny brains...
1: Covers over their head, I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I'd be doing. If I could see gamma rays, I'd certainly be hiding. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, but yeah I think our brains just can't process that much information but it's fascinating to the imagination that there is just all this amazing stuff happening out there in the universe and that we have over time learned how to measure that reliably and learned how to visualize that and it's it's one of the reasons why you know some of the Space telescopes and these sort of space-based images are so beautiful, especially when you put false color to them and you you know create things with multiple parts of the spectrum, like the X-rays and the gamma rays and the infrared. There's just all these amazing structures and and um, formations out there in the universe, and uh, it, it makes it makes our little placid water planet seem <laughs> quite mild, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> it makes it seem what it is, which is a. a um a quiet safe haven we should take care of because out there it's not nearly so nice.
2: That is true. (laughs) Um, And and
1: as you say, it keeps opening up parts of the universe, enormous parts. There's a a lovely quote quite late on in the book. I I can't remember who it is you quote. I think it's another woman actually at Oxford and says that 5% of the universe is made up of the stuff we know about. Mm. 95% of the universe is made up of stuff you have no idea about.
2: Yes, yeah, that's um, Professor Danielle Bortoletto. She's uh, the head of particle physics in Oxford and, and a colleague of mine there. Yeah, so she's an experimental physicist, and uh, I went and interviewed a bunch of my colleagues, like Danielle, uh, toward the end of the book to get their perspective on sort of where we're at now and what's coming next and particularly because there's this sort of vibe out there that, like, okay, well, yeah, eventually we got to, we got built the Large Hadron Collider, and then we found this particle called the Higgs boson, which was kind of the missing piece of of our theory of particle physics called the Standard Model of particle physics. And there's some some you know conversations happening about, well, is that it? You know, are we are we done? Is physics done? And it very much reminded me of the turn of, of, of the 19th you know, century when, when people also thought physics was done and then we found, you know, everything from uh, the nucleus to the electron to quantum mechanics to absolutely everything else we've discovered since, which completely revolutionised physics. And, and now, you know, if we look at just the standard model of particle physics, yeah, we're in the same position. This standard model of particle physics, as we know it, only describes 5% of the mass energy content, we'll say, of the universe. And there's, you know, some additional substantial fraction around 20%, which we think is dark matter, which we know must exist because we can see it gravitationally, but we can't see it in any other way, right, at the moment. So we know that one of its key things is it doesn't interact with other types of matter in the way that we're, we're used to. And then there's this other uh, thing called dark energy, which we think makes up most of the rest of the mass energy content of the universe. We have no idea what that is. So it would be incredibly naive for us to think that physics is done and that now we have this neat little model that you can put on a T-shirt that we should stop looking or that we should stop exploring or that we should stop building experiments, right? Isn't
1: that the difference when you said a neat little model? I mean, they had a neat little model. um... I should
2: say, it's an incredibly, incredibly detailed and absolutely mind-blowing achievement of humanity to have this model. Sorry, I shouldn't say it's so little. but
1: But what I mean, though, is, I mean, what I think you're pointing at is, it's one thing to have a model which ties it in and of itself, but you mustn't confuse the model with reality because what was it, 1901? Was it Waddington or someone said, well, we've just got, literally he said, we just need now to dot the I's and cross the T's. And that was three years before Einstein. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like
2: everything else is just, just the details now, just the details left to fill in. And I'm like, well, there's some pretty major details we uh, are missing. And, uh, you know, sometimes it also comes down to philosophy like should we be able to describe the universe mathematically in its relative entirety should we be able to rectify gravity and quantum mechanics Um, now we're veering into theoretical territory that makes me a little frightened because i'm just like well i don't know the answer to that question whether we should whether we can how successful our attempts might be but i think it's really important to remember exactly as you just said that physics and all of science at the end of the day is about how our universe works. It's about reality. It's about unblinding ourselves and unfooling ourselves of how things actually work, you know, and actually trying to to wrap our heads around how nature works in a real sense. And so, yeah, there are many things, there are many indications that we are uh, a long way off done yet in understanding even these most fundamental components of the universe,
1: yeah. Because well, one of the chapters later on, you, you talk about neutrinos, and something I realized, i knew there were three kinds of neutrinos—but mm. then you say, I, "I hope I read it right," that they it, they oscillate between types. Yes. So, the, so a They're neutrino is just sort of trucking along through space as, as a tau neutrino, and then thinks today, I think I shall be something else.
2: Pretty and much, it, yeah. Really, I, I, wish yeah. They, I wish they, I wish they could I, write their story like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, how does a neutrino, do we have any idea how a neutrino just wakes up one morning and says, well, I'll be a different kind?
2: Well, we can, okay, so here's the, the, here's the thing with experiment versus theory, right, is like we can write down a model in which these three types of neutrinos, so- so-called mix, um, and where there's some parameter that over time and space you will detect one in one state or another. Um, it's almost Schrodinger's cat-like, right? dead or alive, you know, tau mu electron neutrino, one of the other, you know, it'll be found in one of these states when you measure it. And and, and we can even, we can incorporate that relatively easy into, easily into the standard model. But why, like the motivation, the why, like, why do they do that? You know, like, and, and we saw, uh, you know, there's some details of that And parameters in that which are relatively poorly measured because neutrinos are incredibly hard to detect (laughs) I mean it took about about 50 years for someone to actually go after and and detect them and and the story is, is in the book but the fascinating thing with neutrinos is that they're one of the key indicators that there's definitely physics beyond this standard model that we have because there's still things about them that we don't understand and that aren't motivated by our sort of previous ideas and we can incorporate them in but really that's sort of being led by the uh, you know in, in tandem the experiment and and the theory where like a, you know a theorist can sort of say well what if it worked like this what would the result of that be could we look at that in the data and an experimentalist is sort of looking sort of going okay well I'm going to try and measure this parameter that will constrain this theory and we get into the details very 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 heavily with stuff like that but um one of the fascinating things I found about neutrinos and I, I included them because they're actually so important and so fascinating in physics that I thought, well, you know, if my, if eventually I want to include all of the main fundamental particles in this story, I have to have a chapter about neutrinos. And I very sheepishly sort of embarked on this thinking, but there's, you know, I want us to tell these real world stories about how, how these experiments had changed the world. And I thought, but neutrinos haven't changed the world. Like I sort of thought like, what, <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> yet yet maybe, maybe it's, they haven't done it yet
2: and yet yet is probably the the operative word because i started looking at potential applications of neutrinos and i thought oh haha ha, this will be a joke like um someone's done some sci-fi and to my utter surprise there are people actually already doing experiments to try and use neutrinos as a kind of long distance communication technique so one of the key things about neutrinos is they interact with Barely anything. I I call them a a barely perceptible puff of a particle. You know, they 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 barely interact. They can go through five, I think it's like light years of lead, something like this, without potentially without interacting. And which makes them incredibly rare, rare to detect, right? Makes them, even though there's they're actually as common as photons or light, if not more so, they're almost impossible to actually pick up in an experiment. Uh, because of this but what that means is if you have figured out how to pick them up in an experiment you can send them a long long way and they won't interact with anything they won't get disturbed by anything so one of the ideas is that you could use them as kind of like an intergalactic cosmic messenger system now if if you were an advanced civilization in another part of the galaxy or the universe and you knew about neutrinos and you had figured out how to detect them I mean you know if that's how you your mind worked, then you too could figure out that actually the only possible sort of matter or the only possible technique that could reach through those distances without getting distorted and lost as a messaging system would be neutrinos. And so you might, you know, rather than radio signals, little green men, et cetera, um, it's been a fantasy (laughs) of sci-fi for many years, but neutrinos, right? you would probably be able to use that. So what happened at Fermilab actually is they decided to test this by encoding. So to create neutrinos, you start with a proton beam, you smash it into a target, goes through a couple of things and then ends up with a neutrino beam, right? And oh, yeah. so they, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I say don't... that because to me, it's like well, <laughs> easy. Uh, <laughs> okay. Protons generate pions, which decay to muons and neutrinos. So that's 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 the process. So you take the neutrinos, and they sent them through like kilometers of rock and detect them in a, in a detector. And they were doing this for physics purposes. But one day they had the idea, okay, let's encode the proton beam with like a Morse code type signal and see if at the detector we can detect the neutrino beam and decode this signal that we've sent. And it worked. Isn't it just fascinating? And so it's like imagine if our neutrino det- detectors one day start seeing encoded signals.
1: Well, I was going to say. I mean, has anyone told SETI, you know, the search for it?
2: <laughs> Expand SETI to the neutrino. Because if
1: they do, if they don't interact with anything, presumably that means that, unlike a lot of other particles, they're not going to bend and be deflected. They'll exactly.
2: Well, just... they're not electrically charged, so yeah, that they, they, they won't bend or be deflected, and they have a very small mass, so they're not that affected by gravitational so effects.
1: Massive amounts of energy. It's not like a you know creating a. a a, a tremendously powerful laser, where you need to generate massive power to create it. Presumably, just a, a...
2: at the moment we, because the way we know how to generate neutrinos is with a proton beam. Uh, um, that they require quite a lot of you know, wall plug power with a, a big accelerator <laughs> to generate. Maybe we can come up with a smarter way of doing it. Right? Yes, you,
1: you, you talked about how it, um, the, those experiments back in California took a lot of electricity. I was reminded of when I filmed at Fermilab, and I. Mm. Asked it was the Tevatron, and the fellow who was then running that bit of it, at least, he said, oh, yes, he was an Italian fellow, he said, "Our electricity uh, bill is about the million dollars a month.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is actually a huge conversation that's happening in the field at the moment, because these machines and these facilities, they do consume large amounts of electricity, not going to yeah, lie. Um,
1: Chicago would dim if they'd gone <laughs> at the wrong time. <laughs> like they complaints from the grid saying everyone's lights are going dim switch it off and come back later uh, yeah
2: yeah so so CERN for example um nearby CERN there's a, a nuclear uh, energy like nuclear reactor which you know they have a, their own sort of substation connected to that but there is a discussion at the moment um so there's a few different major things that consume energy one is one is the what we call the cavities that actually give the particles energy If you make those superconducting, just like with the magnets that also, like once you make something superconducting and run electricity through it, it has a lot less losses. So superconducting elements generally consume less electrical power. Um, But there's also just the fact that in these machines, you have to ramp magnets up and down and there's losses involved in, in doing that in terms of energy. So energy efficiency and sustainability is actually an enormous movement in our field at the moment because we realise um, that it is not really acceptable nowadays to not address this, you know, to just go hell for leather, like I'm just going to do the ultimate thing that I want as a scientist. And and one of the interesting things about this is it, when we add these additional challenges or we, we try and go beyond the technology that currently exists, it forces us to innovate. And so it's quite an interesting direction happening at the moment. It's, it's forcing people to innovate in order to use less electrical energy in in the experiments that we use. Because once you get to something that's 100 kilometres long, which is what they're looking at next for the future circular collider, I mean, no one wants to pay that electricity bill, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Not even us. (laughs) Um,
1: And... Uh, we were talking about things that spin off. It's a story that people know, but I think it's worth mentioning. Of course, is Tim Berners Lee and the World Wide Web that yes, that yeah. it is a direct spin off from CERN. Just ha- handling that much data because those- yeah.
2: So, so I want to I want to quickly I want to say the story, but then quickly I just yeah. want to read um uh, read a, a quote actually from the one of the guys who uh, hmm. Robert Wilson who invented the the, the who got the funding for the Tevatron. So, yeah, so Tim Berners-Lee was working at CERN at the predecessor from the, the Large Hadron Collider, which was called the Large Electron-Positron Collider. Uh, it's in the same tunnel, 27-kilometre-long tunnel. And he realised that there was this sort of data challenge coming where they were going to generate so much data in the experiments that simply handing things on floppy disks or whatever whatever that at that time um, was... Was not going to cut, and that they collaborated internationally, and that in the spirit of CERN, which was invented for science for peace and as a you know, distinctly collaborative project between different nations, that they were required really to be able to easily share the data so it could be analyzed at any of the participating laboratories around the world. And now they were already using email, (laughs) that did already exist. But what Berners Lee came up with was uh, the World Wide Web protocol and the key technologies behind that, that HTTP and some of the other technologies. Um, so the the physical infrastructure of the internet already existed, but the usable thing that we would now call, you know, using the web. Or use, if, if I said I'm using the internet now, what I'm really using is the World Wide Web, and that was the bit that that Tim Berners Lee invented. And it was this sort of proposal that he put. it was sort of tinkering away with it in the background and he put this proposal to his his boss at the time uh his name I can't remember but it was a it was a woman um Peggy I think her first name was I can't remember her last name and uh you know the the boss scribbled on the edge of it uh you know something like um you know vague but interesting and just sort of (laughs) let him go into and this is a key thing right like creating environments where people can just pursue the thing that they're curious about or the thing that they think might be useful, even when nobody else in the world at that point in time actually understands it or how it might be useful, was a key thing about these big institutions like CERN that allowed him to come up with the World Wide Web. And I don't know if you know this random random fact, but one of the first websites on the World Wide Web was actually this band at CERN called the CERNets, which is like <laughs> these, these women who like this singing group. It was one of the first pictures on the internet and, and they maintained the website, one of that, the first websites. But I wanted to read... Uh, a, a quote from when the, so the pre the biggest machine before the LHC and before the big CERN one w- was the Tevatron one that Helen Helen Edwards worked on, and in 1969 when Robert Wilson was trying to get money from U.S. Congress to build this, he was sort of challenged by the senators as to um uh, you know what the point of this machine was right and you know, the senator sort of said he understood the purpose of the machine was kind energy physics, which was an educational academic process, and he adds, um, and a cultural one, but with the firm expectation that technological developments will come because we're doing extremely difficult technical things, and because we're working in a strange kind of research, we know from past experience that new techniques inevitably develop techniques which have paid more than paid for the cost of the basic research that was not pointed to such developments. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely in the Tebertron with the case of MRI scanners turned out to be true, paid back many, many times, the investment. And then the Senator pushes him on it. And once he sort of almost, he thinks he's trying to help, but he's not. And he pushes Wilson on it. He says, is there anything to do uh, with this machine that uh, will have anything to do with the security of the country? And Wilson just says no, because he was involved in the Manhattan Project, but he was a pacifist and he, he didn't want, he actually didn't want the Manhattan Project to succeed and was quite devastated when it did. Um, and his days of working on anything related to security or defence were very much over. Um, and so the senator presses him on it. Is you know, nothing at all, and he, he knocks it out the park and this is what he says. He says, it has only to do with our respect with which we, re- we regard one another, the dignity of man, our love of culture, it has to do with are we good painters, good sculptors, great poets? I mean, all the things we really venerate in this country and are patriotic about, it has nothing to do directly with defending our country except to make it worth defending. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if he'd practice that line, but it is it is the most eloquent defense of curiosity-driven research I think I've ever, yeah. <laughs> I've ever come across.
1: And 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 as you say, I mean, the fact that Tim Berners-Lee comes up with hypertext and urls i mean all the things that we use yeah if you want to talk about paying things back if neither fermilab nor cern had ever discovered a single particle exactly it'll be worth- it would still
2: be worth it <laughs> exactly and i don't like you know it it feels a bit dirty sometimes and lots of physicists avoid having this discussion because it feels a bit dirty to mention like curiosity-driven research and money and spin-offs and impact and all these things like all at the same time and but that's that's really the wave that we're riding here you know we are responsible to our society for literally the money spent on the research and yes we do fundamentally have a sort of philosophical knowledge gaining ground to stand on but then so do historians and they cost a lot less right Um, (laughs) they don't have to build giant colliders um so then you know people do want to see uh well what is the impact of this research and of course it's not going to be on the short term it's very much a long-term game but by doing this curiosity driven type of research it allows us to find things which We literally couldn't have imagined before. And that has an enormous, like exponentially, exponential driving effect on what is possible in technology, right? So, you know, I always come back to x-rays. If someone had asked a doctor at that point in time to invent a better technology to investigate the human body, they would have come up with a better scalpel, right? Not x-rays, never x-rays, right? They would never have landed upon that. So we need, and also I'm, I'm not naive enough to sort of say like, oh, of course we should just fund curiosity-driven research. No, of course not. We need industry. We need the innovators. We need the entrepreneurs. We need the applied scientists as well to sort of take these ideas and figure out the detail of how it might actually work into something useful. But if we remove that fundamental curiosity-driven part, the rest of it just collapses. You've just got better scalpels for a 1,000 years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but also... As you say, you, you, uh, when people talk about the dreadful word impact, mm. it may have impact, but if some bureaucrat says to you, but what will the impact be? <laughs> that's, that's the that you can't answer because, as you say, exactly. well, Marie Curie couldn't have said, well, the impact of this strange stuff that I'm right. fiddling around with, um, or, or the, the, the people fiddling around with cathode ray tubes, they wouldn't have been able to say, I oh, will have X-ray machines.
2: And they're often the last people you should ask. (laughs) Um, uh, Even JJ Thompson, when he discovered the electron, which underpinned the entire electronics industry, he gave a talk at the Royal Institution, which is where he presented his discovery. And uh you know presenting it and then there was this toast in his lab in Cambridge afterwards which was which said uh, it was like a tongue-in-cheek toast which was like to the electron may it never be of use to anybody (laughs) and 20 years later he's standing there at the Royal Institution giving another lecture literally saying if anyone was here 20 years ago you wouldn't believe that I'd be back here sort of talking about the industrial applications of what it is we discovered 20 years ago but by that point they were absolutely everywhere and you you know Electrons and electronics underpinned, you know, a whole lot of different technologies. And, and you know, Thompson could never have predicted that. No. We're very bad at projecting, actually, in our imaginations, the change in technology. I was just looking today that for the 1900 World Fair in Paris, they asked a bunch of artists to make postcards imagining the future 100 years from from then, from um, 1900 to, to, to 2000. And it involves <laughs> flying... Vehicles with propellers and wings. The outfits were basically the same. They didn't think fashion would change at all. There was a lot of things about living under the sea. I don't know why. <laughs> they were really obsessed with, with living under the sea. But any you know, advanced technology to them was still very mechanical, for example. So they had these ideas of, you know, like an automated barber, but it was all these like arms and, and you know, mechanical things. Because the idea that... You know, the idea of electronics or the computer or, or you know, the smartphone, <laughs> like this was just, how can you imagine that at that point in time? It's impossible. So, you know, if I sit here now and I think or I ask you, what will our future be like in 100 years? I genuinely think that it's impossible to predict and anyone who thinks they can predict it is probably lying.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, industry is very good at making use of what we already know finding mm. uses for it but but not for coming up with something that we never knew existed
2: yes because and, that requires a very different mindset doesn't it, it is.
1: and 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 your whole book is the strange and unusual people that did and there, there's this mixture of sort of
2: are we strange and unusual they are
1: <laughs> sense, you know they, they, they have the, you know they, they have the ability to in some Heath Robinson way, tinker around and mm. do something, but they're making something whose purpose is to do something that no one ever realized that it could be done. That this yeah, thing. so it's 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 not a it's not an improvement on an invention. It's to do something everyone else said. Do what? I mean, what is it doing? It, it,
2: they're right. imagining a new thing, right? And it's so often the case with scientists as well now. Like, you know, someone asks me even, oh, what are you you researching? And I try and tell them. And even though I'm a science communicator, they're like, what? Why? Why are you doing (laughs) that? I'm like, I mean, I could project out and just sort of say, well, it might make particle beams more powerful, which might help us in the future. And everyone's like, that's very vague, but okay. Especially that more fundamental research. It's, you know, most people really... Struggle to wrap their heads around why would you do that? Okay, well we'll just trust you to go off in a corner and do that, and it may or may not be useful to us. But what I really wanted to highlight in this book was sort of how we actually do that process. You know, how we actually someone how someone like me walks into the lab every day and uh, designs and builds apparatus with our own hands, or you know, okay, with CAD, and then it gets sent off to a machine, um, <laughs> and and then tinker around with it, as you say and debug it, which is a lot of the process, and understand it fully enough to investigate something that nobody's ever looked at in the world before. Right. And that it, is a, this an absolute one- privilege, right?
1: There's this wonderful moment in almost all of the stories where, to paraphrase it, someone's tinkered around and made this thing which has never been made before to do something which nobody quite understands. And there's nearly always a moment where you suspect someone said, it's done what? Yeah doing something that no one expected it could do or that that mm. within the universe and then it's this thing is doing something which nobody understands it's saying what the heck is it doing
2: right so everybody thinks that there's a eureka moment right no there's not there's just a moment where you sit there and go what's that like
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is the key <laughs> That's it something is happening which has never happened before at least we've never seen it happen
2: right and like nine times out of ten you're like what's that it's, like, it's just an electrical noise but um you know, like okay, no, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, um, but then, <laughs> but, but, but then, it, one in a hundred. You know,
1: yeah. If you it's have that real. mindset that says, "No, I'm not letting that go." That's not electrical noise. That's something else that's weird. Right. Those are those are the people who suddenly find a hole to open a door in the universe which no one's ever opened before.
2: Right. And it takes it takes a really unique environment and mindset and support system, actually to make that happen. Right. Like if, if you're working nowadays in, in a high tech company, you know, one of the big ones that invents things like this and you see something weird in the lab, you're not going to follow up on it. Are you? Because like more, yeah, more than likely you're not going to follow up on it, even if it's interesting to you, because it's just not something that you have time for. You have all these pressures, you know, you're not going to sit there and think about it. I mean, maybe if you're lucky, you might. Whereas, what we need is environments that actually train people to have this sort of prepared mindset and to have that persistence and also, you know, to bring teams together that also support each other through that very difficult human process because a lot of the time it's frustrating, you get things wrong, um, you know, like the realities of life as a researcher hit some, some students very hard, like when they think it's going to be all excitement and actually it's it, it can be day-to-day sometimes a bit of a drag if you know if that was what you expected but there is a joy within that right it's almost like a like it's almost like a zen thing right Where, where you're like okay I'm just gonna you know go back in and work my way through this and and you have to take the small wins as they come right so like I always I'm very excited when I'm like, right, okay, I've built this thing it's, and, and now, okay, I've got this bit working exactly how I wanted. Right, done for the day, go home, feel good, get to a point where, you know, where something's working. But those big results might take years to, to come to fruition. They might never happen. But, but we do need those labs and environments and, and people who are willing to dedicate their time to this, which is very difficult if we don't support them properly in their careers, actually. But that's another topic. <laughs>
1: Susie, I was just going to say, I'm sorry we haven't had time for for um, lots of questions. It's just been so fascinating to talk to you. So thank you so much for chatting. Thank you, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Um, and uh, I hope people do ask, continue to allow you and other people to ask the good questions.
2: I I do hope so too, because it's a very important part of being human to be curious and to ask questions, and that it contributes to our our thriving as humanity. Uh, both through knowledge, but also, as some of the stories show, also through um, what comes out of that unexpectedly over the long term.
0: Listen, thank you very much indeed for chatting to us. This episode of the podcast starred Dr. Susie Sheehy and was presented by David Malone. It was produced by Esme Bright and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. Our editor is John Doughty. Susie's book, The Matter of Everything, is out now. See you next week when I'll be in conversation with the Italian novelist Francesco Dimitri. Until then, thanks for listening.